authors, editors, publishers, book cover designers, agents, critics, readers. A whole lot of professionals come together for a book. We are going to explore the world of books in our unique podcast show called Book Lounge. Book Lounge is brought to you by iCafe Podcasts, born with a collaboration between Tell Me Your Story and Zero Hour Entertainment. I am your host, Koral Dasgupta, all set to ask some interesting, straightforward and fun questions to our guests. It's great pleasure for me to have author, historian, William Dalrymple as our inaugural guest for Book Lounge. Welcome to the show, William. Hi, how are you? I am absolutely fine and it's great pleasure to have you on board. So, William, I'll get on to the questions and... Uh, just to tell you before that, that we, we are extremely excited to have you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. So, William, uh, I will start with a very fundamental question. You were looked up as a very serious intellectual and general readers often find your work to be intellectually intimidating. Do you think history as a subject or historians as interpreters bear this image or they should? Well, first of all, I, I quibble that uh, people find my work intimidating. I think that at the moment, um, I believe I am the best-selling uh, historian in the country. Exactly. And the reason for that is that it is accessible, that you know, history yes. need not be inaccessible. And I make great efforts to make sure that though I put in years and years of research with each book, the style it's written in uh, is not in uh, a forbidding academic prose, but that the mm. same conclusions and the same thoughts that uh, have gone into the research uh, are elucidated in simple, clear, literary prose that's understandable. Uh, you Absolutely. know, you have a, once you've done your research, you have a, the option as a historian hmm. to write it up in clear, um, uh, lucid prose or, hmm. or you know, um, as some historians feel the need to do, to write it in dense academic sort of post-colonial jargon. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that I can understand where that's coming from. And, and you know, there are certain parts of the academic community um, who feel that that, that that language is helpful. Mm. But I think with human affairs, as opposed to high science, mm -hmm. uh, there are very few things that can uh, cannot be conveyed in simple, clear um, mm short sentences, uh, uh, accessible English. And um, I try to use the same, you know, I spend as much time on my prose as, 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 as any novelist would. And, and I think that's mm -hmm. part, of, part of the job. I don't, you know, as I, particularly as I'm not working in a sense, uh, you know, within academia uh, mm -hmm. uh, with a view to being, uh, uh, you know, uh, struggling to get the next lectureship or what, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not compelled Mm. Uh, to write in, in in jargon and and, and can um, and can present my conclusions clearly uh, and in what I you know as, as fine a prose as I can muster. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any need. I mean, I think you know if you're dealing with um, um, if you're dealing with uh, uh, high science, uh, obviously mm. there's a need for. Um, for equations and, uh, and, and specialist language. Mm -hmm. But um, history is about human beings. It's about human Absolutely. affairs. And in the same way that, you know, we, we can describe what happened to us um, on, on the way to the shops in the morning, mm. we can describe what happened to someone on the way to the shops in 1800 or 1100 or 200 BC. True. You know, your uh, answer prompts me to ask you something which is, again, very, very basic. 
that uh, William, you are not affiliated in terms of a job with any institute or with any uh, in, with any institute or with any body for that matter. You are mm. not in a job situation. How do you keep the targets? How do you kind of stay motivated that this is something that this is a subject that you will take up? This is something that you will research, and this is something that you will write. Oh, primarily because I have to say, you know, in order to make a living, I you know I finish a book, uh, and I certainly would you know hope that I take uh, a few months off to launch the book and and maybe mm-hmm. a couple of weeks holiday. But uh, at the end of that, you know, I have to go back and. Uh, uh, think hard about what my next project will be, which is the state I'm in at the moment, incidentally, mm-hmm. uh, in order to keep the wolf from the door. You know, I have to have to make a living. Um, sure. My great hero uh, and my sort of guru as a writer of history was is an extraordinary um, medievalist, uh, now dead, called Sir Stephen Runciman, uh, little mm-hmm. known in India, but very celebrated in, in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And Runciman was the great historian from the kind of 50s through to the 90s. He was the great mm-hmm. historian of Byzantium and the Crusades and uh, the history of sort of East-West relations in the Middle East. Mm. Um, and I loved his books. They were incredibly well-researched, but they were written in prose that, you know, you wanted to read. That, you know, mm-hmm. they were enjoyable to read as a, as a good novel, but they were not fiction. They were non-fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. And... Uh, I went to see him before he died. He was already mm-hmm. a very old man. And, and he told me about how he'd, you know, he'd chosen at a certain point in his life to leave um, mm-hmm. Trinity College, which, uh, Cambridge, which was my college too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and leave the teaching machine and the academic machine in order to write because he wanted to write. He knew that his gift, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he did have an exceptional gift as a writer. Um, and he didn't want to spend his life, you know, getting involved in, you know, running the university or or, or becoming mm-hmm. vice chancellor or head of the Senate or, you know, mm-hmm. any other options which would have been open to him or even head of history. Right. Um, wanted to leave a memorial in terms of a shelf full of really good books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said to me that, and then he said, you know, you don't don't feel you have to do a PhD and go into the academic machine. Uh, if you want to write, write. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if you have the gift, you you know, if, and you're lucky, you should be able to make a living. And and I found as long as I really work hard mm-hmm. uh, and produce a book every, you know, ideally three or four years. Mm-hmm. Runciman said that you know, if you have the the wish to write, um, mm-hmm. you probably you know you, you should give it a go. You don't feel you have to go into academia and uh, and you know mark papers and take tutorials. If what you actually want to do at the end of the day is to write books. Um, and I've always took him at that advice. Um, I spend, you know, as long as someone would normally spend on a PhD for each book. I, I do, you know, four years is my normal, uh, uh, my latest, The Anarchy, took six, uh, exceptionally. But um, uh, each one of those is, is a six-year project. And I find that if you, you know, if you can keep turning them over, Mm-hmm. Um, find also very importantly finding a subject which you know is of interest not just to people in India but also in the US and internationally, Britain, Australia, yeah. internationally. Uh, uh, you know each one of these you know you, you can sell the rights in in, in a variety of different countries mm-hmm. and um, if you're lucky you will be able to make a living and, and I find I can I mean I haven't got much slack sense that you know I, once I finish one book I pretty well have to go straight on to the next um, and uh, it helps if every three or four years you can you can find some way of doing some, you know a short book that's bestseller like I did Koinor, which took actually six months. Absolutely. Well, 
uh, you know, a short, popular book, uh, as opposed to these great heavy ones. Um, but uh, yeah, no, you, I, I, you know, I, I do make a living. Uh, I'm, I'm not a rich man, but uh, I certainly make as much as my contemporaries, you know, who are who are in journalism or uh, uh, or, or, or any of the media jobs. But I, you know, I have to, I have to keep working to do that. Yeah, and you inspire us a lot. We keep learning from you. So, uh, William, you have scripted an inspiring success story with your life, uh, a space where many of us would love to reach. So given your influence and given your experience, what do you believe is your role in uh, impacting young, younger generations? Well, I mean, none of us, I don't think people go, go about um, uh, living their life quotes in order to impact the younger generation i mean you know you live your life in order to make a living and and do something that amuses you and and, and that you know fulfills mm -hmm. you um i really like writing books uh, i find mm -hmm. it very hard work i find it difficult but the sense of achievement at the end of writing a, a good book that uh, you know gets good reviews and is widely read is is mm -hmm. it's a very satisfying life um i think i'm lucky in that you know there are quite a lot of people in britain and america like me who do write outside academia mm -hmm. and who, who um, you know, win the awards and, uh, and and write books that are very well reviewed, uh, but are not part of the academic machine. Mm -hmm. uh, very few historians in this country uh, do that, though. Um, uh, Ram Guha is the other obvious example of someone who is not, does mm -hmm. not teach, but uh, does generally, you know, turn out a big serious history book that gets well reviewed mm -hmm. every three, four years. Um, and uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, I am a bit of an outlier in that sense in this country and that not many other people have, have woken up to the fact that you can do that. But I think there is now a generation coming up that have seen mm -hmm. that this life is possible. I'm thinking of Manu Pillai or uh, Ira Mukoti, um, mm -hmm. Pakti Sharma, mm -hmm. uh, generation below me. Uh, and they are now, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, making, making a very successful uh, mm -hmm. stab at, uh, at the same sort of projects. So, did you ever receive a comment or criticism or a review from someone who, with whom you may have some ideas or personality mismatch, but then the review had touched your heart or it made you think very deeply? And asking about your readers. Yeah, no. Um, uh, when I think of reviewers, when I, I mean, obviously it's reviewers, reviews that you um, um, you come across and which. Um, you know, in a sense of uh, 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 what you're thinking about as a... Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Indian review and uh, Western re review is very different. Western, in the West, there are book critics. In India, we don't have book critics, not many of them. Well, so, there's, yeah, there's some very good ones. I think, I think you know, I can, I can think of a few uh, extremely good critics out there. I mean, you know, probably at the front of the pack, Pankaj Mishra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there, but there are many others. Um, and I think, again, that's growing. Um uh, I, I think I think we're finding more and more people um, uh, to come and do that actually because I find a lot of people talking about books, but they were more mostly reviews which are talking good things about books, but not necessarily being a critic about uh, their thoughts and probably not launching that dialogue. Do you find it the same, or do you find? Uh, it uh, convincing, or you find you have different experiences. So I mean, you, you asked me was the one one review, and I suppose um, I, yeah, I can think of one which exactly matches that. There was a critical review written by Gyam Pandi, uh, mm -hmm. who's a member of the Subaltern Studies uh, uh, community, who teaches at Princeton, 
Um, and um, he wrote a critical review of my work in The Nation in America. But it was such a carefully written and fair and um, well-argued piece mm. that I mm. engage with them. Rather, you know, I mean, it, you, know it, you have to learn in this game to, you know, if someone's just writing malevolent reviews, someone you know, clearly doesn't like you for some reason and, and, and they, or is jealous of you or envious or something, and they write a nasty review. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's an idiotic review. You just have to learn to ignore that. And just take yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's so. exactly what I wanted to know from you, that a good review, which may or may not be yeah. But Jan wrote an extraordinarily sophisticated review, and he he linked it to the work of other other people working in the same field, like Neil Ferguson and mm -hmm. uh, Linda Coley. And I wrote to him and 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 engaged with him, and mm -hmm. uh, and we well we a became friends, and b he might be teacher Princeton. Teaching at Princeton for a while um, uh, because of this, so I, I was very glad I did, and uh, and in a sense, I you know I, I did take on his criticisms, and I thought there were things which uh, he said which were very fair, which uh, I've uh, I've incorporated to subsequent work. Hmm. Okay, and uh, now William, if I may uh, try to understand, what is your writing process like? You just say that you take four to six years to do a research and for the book to come out, your books come out within that, I mean, with that kind of a time gap in between. So how is the journey, if you could tell us with reference to uh, your latest, The Anarchy, that how does a blank page fill up? I mean, how does it happen? Do you already have what you want to write in mind? Do you have, do you do those plotting of uh, <laughs> chapter plotting and such things? Or yes, I, I am, I'm very, um, particular about this I, I mean occasionally I read interviews with novelists who describe that you know they start with only a smell or a picture mm. or emotion or something in their head and they start writing and, and, and in due course a novel appears that's mm. the opposite to my process I'm I spend five years reading through material to write these books and um, in the course of that research mm. begin to construct a, a plan mm. uh, which I stick to minutely uh, mm -hmm. Occasionally it changes, you know, it, uh, often in the writing you, you, you realize things you hadn't spotted or make connections you hadn't made before and so on. But mm -hmm. um, in principle, I, I plan everything out absolutely minutely. I know what each chapter will be, I know which area it will cover, I know roughly the order of events that, uh, uh, you know, things will happen chapter to chapter. Uh, and um, the last year of my research is, in a mm -hmm. sense, putting all into shape and I have uh, banks of card indexes with each character in the book uh, so that I have you know uh, their characters in a sense worked out before I start writing about them and, and, and you know, the best anecdotes about them to illustrate that ready mm -hmm. at hand. I have a dateline which often runs to four or five hundred pages by the time that uh, I get to write I get starting writing with all the all the quotes already cut down and and uh, and selected for each event. Um, so that when I actually sit down to write at the end of you know, whatever it is, three or four or five years of research, mm -hmm. the actual writing process is very intense, but quite quick. Uh, I get up very early. Mm -hmm. I have a printout with all the material that I've written in that chapter up to then. Mm -hmm. And I spend the first couple of hours going through that very minutely, often outside on the terrace with a pen mm -hmm. before I put my emails. There's then a bit of time when I sort of, um, you know, go for a run, have breakfast, 
look at the males a bit. Uh, they're not they don't answer many, to be honest, at, at that point of the day. And but try and try and you know firefight the, the the difficult ones, and then go back to the desk, put in the corrections by about ten, and hopefully by about ten thirty eleven, and writing mm-hmm. new material. And okay. we'll get up to about four when I collapse uh, and have a have a very late lunch and sort of uh, and 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 uh, if it's summer maybe have a uh, have a siesta. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's the that's the process. It's uh, it, it's very intense, but hopefully, if it, even a very long book, if you've got everything worked out in advance, you can write it in in, in eight nine months. So that is an interrupted uh, writing time that you have. Yeah, you've got to completely clear the decks. Uh, and, and you manage to not take any kind of. I mean, given the time of social media, you just stay away from every kind of so digital that, interruption as well. I have a I have a desk in a shed outside where there is no Wi-Fi um, because <laughs> okay. I am social media and I'm always checking my mails and fiddling around with with Facebook and uh, and Twitter um, and Instagram um, and you know if you have uh, Wi-Fi on your on your laptop I find that you know you you, you, you get about ten lines written in the morning because <laughs> you're busy writing <laughs> else. Um, and the key is to clear the decks. And I lock my phone in my drawer. I take the laptop down to the shed, and I don't come back till four in an ideal world. Uh, and then you can spend the rest of the day, you know, dealing with tax or emails or uh, you know whatever it is that um, is looming. Uh, as there's always something, change the light bulbs, you know, buy toilet paper, whatever you have to do. <laughs> uh, the, the you definitely have few hours more than twenty-four by doing that. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but the key is to have all that to one uh-huh. side writing and and inevitably stuff will pop into your head um you know oh i have rung so and so or thanks so and so for the party or uh, confirm such and such a thing that i'm going to do uh mm-hmm. but the key is to have a little sheet of a4 by your desk and just write it down on that don't do it don't get up and and, and write to your friend like, the dinner the night before or uh, or uh, you know shoot off to buy a new light bulb um Instead, you just got to um, uh, put it aside and then do it uh, uh, when you when you've got you got time. Yeah. So, uh, William, I ask you something which is a very little different from your writer's profile. I want to know from you. Uh, I mean, what is the most inspiring experience that you may have had with a stranger, if at all? You have traveled to many countries, met many people. Did you ever have one such interaction which you would like to talk question. about? To ask. I mean, the whole, in a sense, the whole point of travel writing, which was what I was doing in my twenties, my early books like *City of Gins* and *From the Holy Mountain*, uh, is, you know, is entirely about chance meetings with strangers. Uh, yeah. So that can cause. So to select one would be um, would be you know, would, would be silly. But I mean, the key people in my life who I met by mm-hmm. chance. Dr. Jaffrey, the Persian teacher in uh, *City of Gins*, who was my sort of early guru and guide to Delhi in the early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friend Bruce Wanell, who I met by chance in Islamabad in 1994, became my big Persian translator and French translator for all my subsequent books, and who kind of came to live with me for quite a lot of the year uh, oh. while we were doing that. Um, and, and he's, he's in a sense, my closest collaborator. Um, and um, I suppose those are the two people that have had, had most influence on, on me, and both, you know, uh, met mm-hmm. by chance, met by plan. I get it. So, uh, 
You have been a scholar, a traveler, a historian, a media presenter, and you have done many more hats, and you have won many awards. In spite of such success, did you ever feel that you would have loved to possess a particular skill or invest in a profession unrelated to your present profile? Did you ever feel envious of another profession? To be honest, not terribly, no. I mean, there's all sorts of things in life I would like, to, you know, qualities mm. I would like to have. You know, mm. I would like to be sort of dazzlingly good looking and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, an incredible sportsman and sing opera. And, you know, the, you know, the list is endless. But um, in actual reality, uh, I, I'm, um, I, I think the you greatest settled. gift I I was given was was in a sense having one real talent that was clear. Um, I have other friends who you know had that chance of being you know the opera singer or the athlete or the Mm -hmm. banker. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, were able in a sense to choose from multiple lives. Mm -hmm. I never wanted that. I never had that. I I, you know I always had the one big talent which was writing. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't think that I could write a book but I knew you know by the time I started writing books that I could write articles mm-hmm. and was good you know letters and stuff and so you know it was worth taking the punt that uh that you know I could enlarge that into the skill of writing a book mm-hmm. um and I think you know to have one clear talent is is a great gift in itself um I often find that people contemporaries who in a sense, slightly underperformed from the, you know, the dazzling possibilities that they seem to have at university. We're often the people that had many, many talents mm-hmm. and never particularly honed in on one mm. and persisted with one. True that. So my last question, uh, William, if you would have to name one author or any other professional for that matter, as your successor, who would you name? I mean, when I say successor, I don't necessarily mean just writing skills. I mean one person who seems very close to your ideals, your attitude, your talent, the person that you are. Well, the person I'm I'm probably most envious of his gifts as a writer is my friend Robert McFarlane. Okay. Uh, he's a dazzlingly talented uh, writer on travel and nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and writes the most beautiful prose of anyone I know, really. Um, he, he's an extraordinary uh, mm-hmm. um and um, I'd love to write like him, uh, but I, didn't, I I mean, he's you know he's he's a, he's a uh, an estab- a, a super well established author in his own right, and and that sells me in many markets, particularly Britain. So mm-hmm. I didn't. Uh, it would be arrogant to see him as a successor in the sense that he's already mm-hmm. well established, in many ways more successful than me. So. <laughs> But it's certainly the best No, I completely understand what you mean. Probably you see yourself in him or you see him in you. Is that I did, I did see myself. I was giving an example of someone, I, someone I, whose talents I'm envious of. Um, uh, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, William, for your time. I really appreciate this conversation and I had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you, audience, for listening to our show, Book Lounge, brought to you by iCafe Podcasts. Please do reach out to us with your thoughts and suggestions on hello at iCafePodcasts.com. Subscribe to www.icafepodcasts.com and you can also hear us on other audio apps. Stay tuned with us for Book Lounge. iCafe is brewing.